highest or state of disaster in Belgium. And uh, which was quite when you go when you actually go there to do a football match and then you end up covering a big news event with people dying in front of you. It's uh, it's a bit of a shock. It took me a few months at least to get over that. And you do see things that you obviously can't report on or take photographs on. And that's all about trust. If you can keep the trust um, between you and that and whoever people you're working with, whichever team it is, I mean, you've got that forever. But if you, if you renege on that deal that you've got, you've lost it forever too. Hello, you're listening to the Forward Pass podcast. Joining me this week is leading rugby union photographer Dave Rogers. A veteran snapper with over 40 years' experience behind a lens, Rogers has had a front row seat for some of the greatest moments in the sport's history, including every Rugby World Cup. He has also been granted enviable behind-the-scenes access that fans and other members of the media can only dream about. He kindly joined me on the phone to reflect on his fascinating career and pass on some priceless insight into how he does his job and how he handles the pressure of capturing history as it happens. Dave, thank you very much for joining me. No problem at all. So, Dave, let's, let's go back to the very beginning. When, when did you first pick up a camera? Oh, good question, Matt. Uh, a long, long time ago now, probably about ooh, 50 years ago. Um, you just left school, really, basically. Just went along to my local horse racing and uh, just fancied having a go. And in fact, I got interest, interested in it when I used to go to Molyneux to watch my football team, Wolves, play. And uh, just thought, oh, fancy doing that. And uh, not really looked back since. I've... Uh, I either want to do that or a TV cameraman, but I never actually went for the TV cameraman job, just went for the stills photographer job, and I managed to get one on a local paper, uh, join a local paper, have to go to college for 18 months, and then join the um, West Midlands Press Group in Birmingham. OK, so, so, you, so you went to college basically to, to learn to do the trade, so to speak? Yeah, it was the NCTJ, which is the National Council of Training the Journalists course, which was based in Wensbury in the West Midlands in those days, which was handy for me because I lived not too far away. Um, but then the year after that, it moved to Sheffield, which is where it's still based now. Mm-hmm. And was it a, was it a popular course? Based on the course in all all the countries, so I was lucky to get on there. All oh, right, I was, was going to say, was it was it a rather was it a popular profession at the time? Is it sort of thing hard to get into? Yeah, it was difficult, very difficult to get into. Uh, obviously, a lot more new, local newspapers in those days, so that was the easier side of it. But actually, to, to get in there, I mean, I, I went for a couple of interviews and the usual sort of. Um, Job, job employment advisor, whatever they call themselves those days. And he said, oh, don't bother, you'll never get into it. Just trying to be an accountant, which I actually did for a week. Uh, before I went to college, I did. I, trained, I started my build-up to be an accountant, uh, and I hated it. I said I couldn't work in an office. And after a week, I left. And uh, went to college the, on the following Monday, which was amazing. <laughs> And you say, so from graduating, it was the Birmingham News, and News and Mail you moved into? Yeah, it was, the, it was their weekly uh, newspaper division called the West Midlands Press, which is part of the Birmingham Post and Mail group. Um, uh, obviously, the Birmingham Evening Mail is the biggest paper in the group. Mm-hmm. We did the local newspaper side of it. So we had uh, papers in Warsaw, West Bromwich, Sutton Coalfield, Soli Hall. Oldbury and places all around the West Midlands. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was a broad news, sport, whatever was required remit. Yeah, did everything, yeah. I remember doing the 77 Queen Silver Jubilee and all those street parties. There were three of us on the local paper in those days in Sutton Coalfield. 
and we did a, I remember the top of my head, I'll never forget it, it's the busiest day of my life, we did 55 street parties each. Wow. Can you imagine going to all these different street parties, one after the other, and trying to organise basically group photos of all the whole street, all these kids and adults everywhere. And uh, as the day went on, they got more and more drunk, and we were still sober, obviously, because we were working. <laughs> now, most journalists will remember the first time they saw their name in print. Do you remember the first picture of yours that, that was featured prominently in the paper? Yeah, the first, well, the first sporting picture I ever got used was the, uh, I did the 1975 League Cup final. And it was... Um, Let's try and think of this correctly. It was Aston Villa versus Norwich City. And uh, one of the first jobs I ever did was my first trip down to Wembley Stadium, which is, I was very nervous. I couldn't drive, my dad took me down there. Um, and it all started from there. So I managed to get a picture in, the local, in our, my local paper then with my name on it, so it was quite good. I imagine, again, having spoken to, to other um, journalists in this series, you know, there, there, are, there are key sort of um, predecessors that they sort of followed or... or in their case, read or listened to or watched. Were there photographers that you wanted to follow? Was it, were, there, were there such people? Yeah, um, I actually had on my office uh, at home, well, not office, but on the bedroom at home, I had a, um, a calendar with sporting pictures on, and a lot of them were taken by a company called Allsport, which is now Getty Images, because it was brought out by Getty Images years ago. And, uh, and it's gone full circle, really, because now I work with that company and it's quite funny because all the guys I know from those days Tony Duffy Steve Powell and all they're still around they're still uh, uh, both, mostly in the States I think they live now but uh, I still see them occasionally and it's quite funny they started me on the on the train I started on the professional train to uh, the job I do now mm -hmm. were, were there key figures that you worked with or came across that sort of really shaped you in the early days in terms of how you were doing your job yeah I was always keen on Main sport in those days was football, and uh, and I, I remember doing the 1978 World Cup qualifying match Liverpool at Liverpool. It was it was Wales versus Scotland, quite a controversial one. And I sat next to a guy called Colin Elsie from Colour Sport, and he was a top man, and I was in total awe of him. And not obviously over the years later, because he was a rugby man as well, big rugby man, mm -hmm. I got to know him really well. And big mates of his, so uh, it's quite funny to get to know these people at the start. You're so scared of them, and then afterwards they become big mates. <laughs> and so, and so, where did sort of your your passion for for photography and, and rugby intertwine? First of all, yeah, well, I didn't do much of it. This is local rugby uh, at Sutton Coldfield uh, for the local paper. And when I in 1978, I was offered a job uh, in Northamptonshire with a guy called Bob Thomas. He had started up his own agency down here, and he asked me whether I could join him. I was his first employee. And uh, after two years or a year and a half with him, he said, uh, I'm going to send you on the lines to tour to South Africa in 1980. And I was amazed because I hadn't done that much rugby. I'd done a couple of internationals before then. Mm -hmm. But I loved it. It was a good way for nearly three months. And if I remember off the top of my head, I think we played, or well, they played, 19 games on tour, which is quite a large, quite a large, long tour yeah. in this day and age. We consider we've just come back from Australia where they played three games, and they played 19 games. So you can imagine how long that, take, that took to do. 
And I, I guess professionally, you'd never been away on, on a job for that long. No, no, definitely. That's the longest trip I've... Probably the longest trip I've done since as well. But the longest one I've ever done, because the, the tour is a lot shorter these days than they used to be. Um, I can't imagine them doing 19 games now. Mm-hmm. We'd be there forever. You see how your career sort of t- took you into sport? Was was sport, obviously, that was the the goal. You were never sort of driven into being like a, a front-line war journalist or something along those lines? Definitely not. I'm a born coward. <laughs> Rug- rugby's as close as I've never even played rugby in my life. I'm too scared to do that. Uh-huh. Um, I know my place in life, and it's behind the camera. It's a nice, safe event, if I can. Uh, it doesn't mean that we haven't had a few sort of skirmishes and things and a few bad things to see. I mean, I was unfortunate to be a... Um, a high school stadium disaster in Belgium, and uh, which was quite. When you go, when you actually go there to do a football match, and then you end up covering a big news event with people dying in front of you, it's uh, it's a bit of a shock. It took me a few months at least to get over that. I'm not really over it now, if you know what I mean. Well, absolutely, yeah. I guess it, I guess it stays with you, absolutely. It does, yeah. Um... I wonder if you could sort of run us through an average an average working week for you in terms of where you go and, and, and what jobs you're on during the week up to perhaps in leading towards a premiership game or, or a test week. Is that something you could just sort of detail for me? Yeah, of course. It's um, it's always a bit. I mean, they do vary. Obviously, depending on what's going on that time of year. But uh, during the rugby season, we probably do three games, uh, three three games over the weekend. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday games, mm-hmm. and and then try and get Monday off if I can, but sometimes you can't, you have to do different things, press conferences or whatever. Uh, and then the rest of the time is taken up with, with other press conferences, uh, a lot of commercial work, we do a lot of work for the sponsors of England today and uh, for the Viva Premiership. Um, and then we have to do training sessions and features with different players. So, I mean, it, it does, they do, it, you do a lot of work, you have a lot of work. And... Um, which I still enjoy. I still like going out there and meeting some of the players and meeting some of the people behind the scenes. But you never get that much time off. Yes, I, I, I imagine. In terms of the games you cover, is that something you choose or, or do you report into an editor at Getty in terms of who divvies up the games or who goes where? Yeah, we do have an assignment editor, Martin Willits, and we, I keep in touch with him all the time. Um, probably too much for him, for his liking. Um, and I do sort of put forward the games I want to do and in general I do get the ones I want to do. And, and work out and also geographical areas to help you know so you can do I'm based in the Midlands East Midlands so I'm based around here but if there's two or three games in the West Country I can go down there and cover them all over the weekend and spend a couple of days down there and, and obviously travel up to Newcastle and sail as well mm-hmm. and in terms of uh, on an actual match day when, when do you sort of arrive at the ground when, when are you filing photos and how does that process work these days yeah I'm quite um, I get there quite early. I do like to. The one thing I do hate is being late, uh, or even near kick-off time. In general, we try to get there. I try to get there two or three hours early and just sit around and have a chat with some of the journalist friends or, or the photographers. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm interested in how how your actual filing of your photos has changed through the years. In terms of, I guess you were clearly working off film um, when you started, and obviously now we're in a digital age. I wonder if you sort of just contrast on perhaps how you would work at a game. I know you've been at every World Cup, for example, for the 87 World Cup, and perhaps how you, how you covered this most recent tour in terms of how things have changed there. Well, it's changed tremendously. I mean, there's hardly a comparison between the two. It's, um, in the old days, it was, it was film, obviously, and I remember doing that Lions tour in 1980, and the first 15, 20 minutes of a match, because the light was always pretty good, 
those first few minutes of the match, uh, you'd shoot colour, and colours are obviously better with sunshine on it. And uh, then the second half, you have to do black and white, and trying to transmit, it's very hard to explain, but to transmit a picture back to the UK, took some doing. We used to have to uh, convert your bedroom into a dark room, so all the windows have to be blacked out. And then you had to set off chemicals and enlarger and take all this stuff with the paper to print it on. And you'd print two 10 by 8 prints um, in your bedroom, a dark, dark room, and then take them down to the local main post office, say in Johannesburg or Cape Town, get the, the official there to send them up on a big machine called a, um, called a, called a Muirhead machine. And then you would send it to Cable and Wireless main office in London, on the embankment in London. My boss in those days, Bob Thomas, would drive down from Northampton, pick up a 5-4 negative, take that back to the office in Northampton, print off that, 20 copies, say, and then take it all the way back down to London and distribute it to all the papers that were in and around Fleet Street in those days. And you compare it now, you just sit there. I was going to say, how long, for example, how long would that take um, in 1980 in, in total? You're talking hours, aren't you? Just, you know, talking, you know, two or three, two or three, well, more than four or five hours to get the picture back. Mm-hmm. It would take him an hour to, hour to drive there and back, two hours to drive there back to Northampton. It's just incredible how things have changed. I, I think news, newspaper deadlines were a lot later in those days as well. Um, it's all to do with production and basically the deadlines have been moved forward for print from newspapers, not because they can't print them later, because they can't distribute them mm-hmm. as, as quick as they used to. And, um, and then compared to the most recent England tour you've been on, how, how, would, how would that operate? Oh, you just sit there, basically. You just sit there on the side of the, side of the pitch with a laptop next to you. And you can either do basic, you can do straight from your camera via the laptop, or you can just download the card onto your laptop and do the work on there, your Photoshop work on there, and then send it from there all over the world within about a minute, which is incredible. It all depends on the communications, obviously the phone systems or the, the Wi-Fi system at the particular stadiums. But in general, they work really well in Australia, so there's no problem there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be a bit tricky. I mean, you can get some places where... The Wi-Fi is shocking. You just can't get a signal out. Paris, would you believe, is sponsored in Stade de France, is sponsored by um, Orange Telecoms. You can't get a, can't get a signal in there, which seems a bit strange to me. But <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in um, in where you position yourself in the ground. Is there a, a pattern you work to, or is there, do you work on any instinct of where you think would be best, or, or is it very much stipulated where you can go and when? Yeah, a bit of both, really. Um, it has changed over the years. There's certainly a lot more restrictions now than than before. Uh, you also, uh, in, you know, there's, there's a lot more people there, photographers-wise, than there used to be. I remember years ago, Twickenham, if I remember, was about eight, eight or nine photographers per game. And now you look, it's probably about 50 or 60 photographers. So there's obviously a lot more people doing it. But it's, it, it depends on what match you, which way you want to cover the game as well. If you're just covering one get one side of the, the match like I was in Australia, I was just covering the England side of it. Because we had the, the guys I work with in Australia, so our Australian office were covering the, the Wallabies. So I just had to concentrate on England attack, really. Which could have, you know, you could have had nothing all day if it had been a really bad performance in either games. But, of course, they play well in all three games. So you get a good selection of pictures. Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess you'd admit that luck plays a, a large role in in your output, does it, or or not? Yeah, 
because it doesn't. Yeah, it does. Fortunately, or unfortunately, we try to look at it. It does. It depends on which corner you're sitting in, and you know, it can be sitting at one end and we four tries down the other end. And you say, I'll, I'll sit the second half and there bound to be some come this way, and then the the, other, the, the match will swing round and there'll be a game of two halves. They say, and it'll all go the opposite way. So you'd be you'd, seven tries in a game, you'd miss them all. I imagine that was quite difficult to deal with when you're part of a small operation, but I guess Getty today have maybe half a dozen photographers there with every angle literally covered. Yeah, we don't we don't have quite as many of that apart from England games at Twickenham. We have probably two, uh, average two at, at international games mostly. Um, but um, World Cup games are a bit different than that. We get far more there, for, uh, photographers there for the World Cup games themselves. But for a normal... A big premiership game is probably just one or maximum two per game. Mm-hmm. Usually one. I mean, I'm intrigued about. Surely you must feel the pressure to to capture the moment in these games, or is that sort of not so much um, a factor now you're so with experience? But do you still feel that pressure to to capture the moment of the game? Yeah, very much. So. I think if you lose that sort of pressure and the atmosphere, you lose the what the reason, one of the reasons you want to do the job. It's just, it's just. It sounds really corny here, but it's as near as, as we can to play in the game without actually playing the game. It's, you still get the adrenaline rush, and you're as close to the action as the players are. Um, not quite as close as they are, thank heaven, but uh, it's, we're pretty close compared with most people in the stadium. Mm-hmm. So I guess you must you must really <laughs> celebrate great shots, and and on, in contrast, feel real disappointment when you miss miss a great shot. Yeah, you do. You feel really proud when you get one that's perfect. You. You do, you do look at, uh, I, I define it, but I say they don't look at the newspapers or, or websites and things. If, they, if they've got a good shot, they want to see it used. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the opposite, if you miss it, you think, oh, comes up, I wish I'd got that. Or if, you, if, you, if you're totally the wrong end, you can't do anything about it. But if you're nearby and you've missed it, that's the worst. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you think you could have got it or should have got it, that's when, you, that's when the old um, guilt complaints kicks in a bit. Mm-hmm. Can we, can we spend a, a couple of moments just going through perhaps some of the ones that stick out for you the most memorable, you know, that you're most proud of out of your archive? Uh, probably the probably the Johnny Wilkinson drop goal. Of course, yeah. Um, to win the World Cup 2003. It's, it's one of those lucky ones. We talked about luck before. It was one of those lucky ones because, as you know, he, he, he kicked the winning kick with his right leg, which is unusual for Johnny. He normally kicks left-footed. And if it had, if it had kicked the other way, obviously all we'd have got was a picture of his backside and his and his and his leg going the other way. But thank heaven he kicked this way, and uh, and we we see a gap because there's a little gap in the crowd, or the, not the crowd, but the players in front of us, and we could just see past the little through the gap and see Johnny winning the match with his drop goal. Mm-hmm. Were you working off digital then, or was that still a film then? Yeah, it was digital in those days. So oh. if you got it or not, you could look at it straight away. Right, I was going to say, because would there be that... You actually know when you've got it anyway, because you just know, you, you know, if you can see it, you can, you can usually get it. Uh-huh. And you just know when it's sharp and that sort of stuff. But, uh-huh. uh, it's, you know, you're very lucky, because, you, you know, it only takes one player to go to walk in front of you, or one of the replacements, or the referee, or the touch judge, or anything like this. There's so many people, a television cameraman, or a sound man, there's so many people in front of you, sometimes it's a bit like for the duck shooting. You know, you have to... You have to see the whites of their eyes, you have to shoot. But um, it can be, 
it can be very frustrating as well as rewarding sometimes. Mm -hmm. And another example, I don't know, perhaps you'll be able to explain in terms of how much luck played a part in this one, or you sort of knew knew this these event this event was about to uh, occur. But the, the picture I'm thinking of is when when Clive Wood was walking back into the tunnel with the trophy, and the fans are all reaching over for it. Do you remember, clearly, you must remember that one too. Yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I saw that he got the trophy. And he's walking down the tunnel. Eventually, he's going to bring the tunnel down. And it always makes a nice picture when the, they look up and celebrate with the crowd. And luckily, as I said, he got the trophy. So it's one of those things. Do you stick with all the other players who were celebrating, or do you stick with the trophy? And what I've found over the years that I, I personally think you stick with the trophy because everybody wants to see a winner with the trophy, not just somebody celebrating as such. Because that could be anywhere. But if you can if you can tie it down to they've actually got the trophy in their hands, and uh, so make up part of the trophy and whoever it could have been, it could have been Johnny. Could have been Johnny with it, or Jono, or anybody else, Neil Back, but he just happened to be the coach with it, so it's perfect. Mm -hmm. And another iconic moment for the sport, which I know you were there for, was obviously South Africa '95, uh, Mandela and Pinar, and, and of course um, that was a stage at which uh, Lomu sort of announced himself to, to a global audience. You have fond memories of that tournament and certain images from that tournament? Yeah, it's um, amazing. I mean, I've been going to South Africa for um, since 1980s. But so a long time before the, that final, 15 years before then, and then obviously worked there during the apartheid days, which were obviously terrible times over there. Um, and to see a country come together, and, and for Esther Rizzi Clerk and for um, Nelson Mandela to be brave enough to work together, and to see a country come together behind rugby union as well. Because, I mean, when I first went on the Lions tour in 1980, all the, um, the, the colours and the black people down there, but they all supported the Lions. It was anybody but the Springboks. Anybody against the Springboks, they supported. But to be there in, when they won the World Cup and, and to see all the, 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 every, every colour of the nation supporting the Springboks was incredible. And, and, and Lomu in particular, have you captured him in his prime? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to see him way before the um, World Cup final. I went to the Hong Kong Sevens. And it's, that's where he broke through, and um, playing with the captain Eric Rush in those days, and he was—you could just tell he was a, an immense talent. I, mean, I always remember he threw the ball from one wing to the other, American football style, and just went straight to the guy who scored in the corner. Just—I've never seen that done before or since. Mm -hmm. um, and then to see him come through, and I was lucky enough to know Jonah quite well. Did quite a lot of work with Jonah. He's a good, good man. Very and. And very badly missed. And um, I remember going over to Australia for the what was the Tri Nations in those days, and trying to get an interview with him with Alison Curvin from Rugby World. And and they said, oh, no chance, no chance, you won't get him. Well, eventually we did get him. We had three hours with him, which was incredible. <laughs> we had a good old chat to him and got to know him really well, which was fantastic. Uh -huh. Does he rank amongst your your favourite subjects through the years? Yeah, he did. He, he certainly did. He was one of the best, well, probably the best player, rugby player I've ever seen. He was iconic. I mean, it's one that everybody who didn't support rugby would know. And and if you go into other sports, another one I I really followed a lot was Severiano Severiano Barrios. And I saw him. I was lucky enough there to, to be there when he won his first Open in 1979 mm -hmm. at Royal Lytham. And I followed his career ever since until he unfortunately died too. So. So uh, we missed two greats of sport there. Mm -hmm. 
As, I imagine as a, a keen sports fan, the access you get within rugby union, at least, is do you find yourself pinching yourself sometimes? You know, when you're in changing rooms, post World Cup wins, post big game wins, that must does that hit you? Of how much, how close you are to history? Yeah, it does. It certainly does. It's it's a very fortunate uh, situation to be in. It's a very privileged situation to be in. I mean, I I, I realise how lucky I am, and um, and you do see things that you obviously can't report on or take photographs of, and that's all about trust. If you can keep, keep the trust um, between you and that and whoever people you're working with, whichever team it is, I mean, you've got that forever. But if you if you renege on that deal that you've got, you've lost it forever too. So you never come back from that. I'm a big believer in respect to them, and and I do appreciate what they do for me in return. Mm-hmm. So, so you almost have a friendship with with some of these people rather than a professional relationship. I like to think so. Yeah, I would like to think that's. Um, you've got to keep it professional as well, because sometimes you do have to do pictures that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Like um, big friends with with Johnny Wilkinson and, and luckily his family and lovely people, but I've had to do so many pictures of Johnny that I didn't like to take people pictures of him being injured here and there and whatever. And you do feel guilty when he's being carried off and you're doing photos of him being carried off in such pain. Mm-hmm. But you do have to, you have a job to do as well. So it's not keeping your distance as such, but it's just, they know, they know that you wouldn't, you don't want to do it, but you have to do it. So. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned South Africa. I know that's pretty close to your heart. Is that your favourite place to, to work? And is there a specific stadium perhaps in South Africa or elsewhere that, that, that is pretty special for you? So ever since 1980, I've loved going over there. For I just love the country. I think it's fascinating, and it's got everything in, everything in one in one place that you need. Um, yeah, I do like going to games in South Africa. I think the atmosphere. They love rugby uh, just as much as any other country in the world. Probably equal equal at par with with New Zealand, obviously. But the weather's generally better in South Africa, which I enjoy more than going to New Zealand. Um, and the atmosphere at all the grounds is particularly good, but I do like, my favourite would be Newlands in Cape Town. I just love Cape Town as a place anyway. But to actually be in Newlands when, when they are, when the Springboks are there and they're winning, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I must ask you about your stint as a rugby writer's chairman. I, I'm presuming you're the only photographer to have held that position and uh, how, how proud you were to take that on. God, I was amazed, yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, it was a massive privilege. Very scary. When you look around that room, I remember the first, I had to do it for two years, so I remember the first time I had to stand up there. I was a nervous wreck. And you look around all the, the top journalists and the, and the top broadcasting people, television and radio broadcasters there, and you think, this is what they get paid to do, and I've got to make a speech and, and, and introduce people. And it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done. <laughs> but it was the biggest privilege as well. I mean, it was a great... Um, it's a great on the first and at the moment the only one so I'm sure others will follow and I hope they do but um, it was a particularly incredible um, thing to do brilliant I guess because how many years now is it you've been you've been behind the lens now Dave because I knew you'd ask that I need a calculator <laughs> um, well so I started I started work in 1975 so wow so, yeah 40 so this 40 41 years 41 and, and how do you make yeah. so the key thing from from my point of view, how do you maintain your enthusiasm and and to do this to do the same job? Yeah, well, I'm I'm very enthusiastic still. I still love sport, most sport, 
um, especially contact sports. I like uh, where you're actually seeing the guys involved rather than, say, say, motor racing or something like that, which I'm, you can really tell what's going on apart from the cars going around. Um, but, I, yeah, I've got a enthusiasm going. Well, two things, really, I suppose. Just self-respect. I like as close as I'm ever going to get to playing a game. And also, you need the backing of, the, you know, of your wife, basically. My coach is fantastic. Claire, Claire, my wife, is fantastic to me and, and, and backs me all the way. And you need that. As a, as a player needs his, his partner as well. So but, uh, it's, all part of the, it's all part of the team together. So. I was going to say, how many, how many weeks a year are you on the road, do you think? Uh, quite a few. Yeah, yeah we're, it's, it's, it's not so much these days, not so much many weeks away. It's just that sort of weekends. I mean, I, apart from holidays as such, I'm working every weekend since I left school. Uh, if I'm away on holiday, then, you know, that's obviously different. But if I'm actually in the UK normally, I'm working every weekend since 1975. I went over to a local newspaper. I had to work virtually every weekend. I was going to say, when was the last time you took in a sporting event as a spectator without a camera around your neck? <laughs> Funny enough, uh, we went down about two or three years ago to Toulon with... Uh, Johnny Wilkinson's friends and family there was about 16 of us all went down there and we went to see Johnny play in Toulon and I sat in the crowd and that's the first rugby match I've ever paid to go and watch <laughs> and it's probably the last sporting event probably about 30 years before then I was probably watching the Wolves play at Molyneux but I haven't paid for 30 odd years for any event and I sat there the whole time it was a great day but I sat there the whole time thinking oh that would have been a good picture Oh, that would have been fantastic, <laughs> lying out in front of us. <laughs> never, never not working, by the sounds of it. Taking pictures with your mind yeah, instead. That would be boring, but yeah, I do, I do switch off, but it was just one of those things, it was just quite funny. It was just seen a different angle. It was, it was, it was, it was a bit weird, because you actually felt out of it slightly, even though we were with Johnny's folks. It did seem slightly uh, distant compared to how close you can get mm -hmm. on the side of the pitch. I was going to say, I don't suppose anyone's had a... Uh, a better view of the way the game has developed over the last 30, 40 years. I, I presume that you you think the game's in good shape? It's come a long way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at the old days. There were, certain, there were some great bits for the old days. The access to teams and to players in particular was fantastic. And you got to know them a lot better than you do now. Um, I mean, players in those days were, had a lot more characters as well in the, in the teams. Uh, you look at some like Jason Leonard, you know, and people like that. But I say basically what they were, they weren't professional in, in that respect. They had other jobs as well to go to. They had, they had a life outside rugby, whereas now, the generation coming through and the one before that, I suppose, they're all the ones who've come straight from school to college to play to local rugby clubs and straight through the system. So they're not... They're a different type of person, a different type of... It's a different type of game now as well. Mm -hmm. I think. It's, um... It's uh, just to wrap things up then, Dave, I'm sort of... For those who maybe listen to this and, uh, and want to follow your lead in, into sports photography, are there some sort of key points that you'd think would get them along that way? Uh, perseverance, definitely. When they say you can't do it, have another go and keep on going. You look at loads of people who say you can't do it. It's easy to say that you can't and you can. Um, it is more difficult, I'll admit that. It is more difficult now than when I first started. There's a lot, there's a lot fewer... Um, newspapers, far fewer newspapers than before. Most of them have gone. Um, 
but, there's a, but the camera equipment is probably cheaper than it used to be, and certainly darn sight better, better quality and easier. Autofocus. When I first started, there was no such thing as autofocus, um, and it's a lot easier now than then. But just keep on going. Just do, as I said before, people will tell you you can't do it, but just make sure that you can. And if you really want to do it, have a go. And I guess, like I say, with with every phone these days having a camera, it's a guess of just practicing, practicing, practicing. I guess. Yeah, you just need to buy the proper gear. I know everybody says that it's not the, the gear that matters, but it is in sports photography. You do need. Uh, I mean, that you can do it with small, you know, less uh, quality outfits and things. But you do need longer lenses generally, and they cost a lot of money. They still cost a lot of money, um, but the, the quality is far better than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And um, but it's just just stick at it. Um, as I said before, just stick at it and have a go. And if you if you feel if you you want to give up your life basically for um, for sport, have a go. If you don't. If you want to be out with your mates every Saturday night, um, don't do it because you won't get that. <laughs> That's a great point to leave it. Thanks a lot, Dave.